Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I spoke with several of you this week, and the prevailing question was, what are you going to preach on this week? And I said, wait till Sunday. But it's interesting because coming, I knew this was coming, but this particular section of Scripture is actually very difficult and very difficult to exposit and very difficult to um, convey to you what the Lord is saying here. And even the most um, higher ranking officials and scholars have a difficult time with this, so yay for me, right? (laughs) How many of you remember who Vinko Bogotaj is? Vinko Bogotaj, and I have some of you raise your hands because you already talked to me earlier this week. That's, that's cheating. But how many of you know who Vinko Bogotaj is? Not many hands, and that's kind of what I figured. That name isn't really familiar for any of us. But those in that generation, I'll just say that generation, I'm not calling you old, But those who are more experienced might know who this person was if you grew up watching the wild world of sports. And you may not know his name, but I'm sure you're very familiar of what he's most infamous for. And he was a skier, more more specifically a ski jumper. And if you remember the title of Wide World of Sports, which was, you can say it out loud, funny, that's the title of the sermon, imagine that. But you should know that when he went down the ski jump, he crashed, and he crashed into the crowd, and it was just a big fiasco. But what you may not know is afterwards, he went on to win, eventually, and so he is a prime example of someone who was able to take the agony of defeat and turning it into the thrill of victory. And again, fortunate for him, his injuries turned out not to be too serious and this previously unknown ski jumper became something of a celebrity here in the United States. So in some ways, you might even say that he turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory. Probably not the way he intended to do it, but he did it nonetheless. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that in your life in a much more significant and important way? What do you think? So this morning, as we're continuing our study in 1 Peter, we'll once again look at the example of Jesus and see how he turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory and see how we can do the same by following his example. So what's the truth this morning? Well, before we read this morning's passage, let me kind of preface it with a few things we need to keep in mind. There is a pretty universal agreement among commentators, Bible scholars, and pastors that this passage is one of the more difficult ones in the entire Bible to understand. So with that in mind, not surprisingly, there are a number of different opinions about the many details here. So let me share with you a few we ought to approach and how we should approach difficult passages of scripture. First of all, and this is something that I learned in seminary. This is what they taught us. It says, don't become so obsessed with the details that we miss the main point. Don't be so engrossed about what made God get to that point that we forget the main point itself. And at most times, this will be true, and especially with this morning's text. The main teaching in the text is pretty clear, even if we can't understand all of the details. So we need to be careful not to put too much emphasis in those details. And secondly, 
to interpret difficult text in light of the clear teaching of the scripture. Okay? So in other words, difficult texts should never be the basis for new and novel doctrine. In other words, don't fix something that doesn't need to be fixed. Let God work that out through you. We need to choose the interpretation that best fits the context of the passage and the Bible as a whole. In other words, don't pull this out like I'm trying to do this morning and try to learn what these particular five verses say when you take it out of context because you're going to miss the point here. You're going to miss what God is intending for this to be. Thirdly, we must leave room for some mystery. What do I mean by that? Well, you don't need to know all the details. As Christians, do we get to see God physically on a day-to-day basis? Some might. I don't. But we rely upon faith, don't we? We rely upon the main point of why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. And the details may be insignificant to that point because we rely upon our faith, upon what God will reveal to us. So we need to leave room for some mystery. We don't need to feel compelled to have a satisfactory explanation to every detail. Tough texts remind us that God is infinite and that he is beyond and it is it is beyond our ability to understand completely. And the final thing I would mention to you is don't be overly dogmatic about the conclusions that you might reach. We should hold our interpretations loosely and not make them a test of the genuineness of someone's salvation. So we need to keep these principles in mind as we read this morning's passage. And you can follow along with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this morning I'm going to spend a little bit of time in these particular passages because I want to mention some of the details because they require the most explanation. But in order to do that accurately, we must keep the big picture in mind. So let's begin by identifying Peter's main point here. And that is, when we follow Jesus, he transforms our suffering in the flesh into triumph in the spirit. Let me say that one more time. When we follow Jesus, he transforms our suffering in the flesh into triumph in the spirit. And this passage begins with a section of Peter's letter in which he is going to draw some sharp contrasts between what we experience in the flesh and what we experience Spiritually, And once again, he's going to go back to the example of Jesus to make his point. So not surprisingly, this entire passage of scripture is primarily about Jesus and how he has made it possible for us to turn the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory in the spiritual realm. So... How Jesus turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory. Well, this passage 
that we're looking at this morning begins and ends with teaching that is quite clear. It is the section that is sandwiched in between those two ideas that it is difficult to understand. Okay? So with that, we can understand clearly and use that information to help us make sense of that which is more obscure. So, in the flesh, Jesus procured our salvation through his suffering. And at the end of the passage we looked at last week, Peter wrote in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he continues in verse 18, to the example of Jesus, who certainly suffered for doing good rather than for doing evil. And there are several important facts about Jesus' suffering that Peter summarizes in this verse. First of all, Jesus suffered once. Unlike the Old Testament sacrificial system, in which sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. Jesus' one-time act of dying on the cross is sufficient to cover the sins of all people of all time. Secondly, Jesus suffered for sins. Our sin, not his. Jesus suffered at the hands of evil men because of sin, but since he was 100% sinless, it was not his sins that caused him to suffer, but our sins that caused him to suffer. So Jesus took our place, and because we are unrighteous, we deserve to be judged, but Jesus, who was completely righteous, took that judgment upon himself in our place. The purpose was to bring us to God, was to bring us closer. The verb that Peter uses here is used in classical Greek to describe the person who would uh, verify someone's right to see the king and then introduce that person to the king. And that is what Jesus has done for us spiritually. He has verified our right to have access for his father and then provided the introduction into his presence. And that was all accomplished by being put to death in the flesh. It's important to note that in his humanity, Jesus was just like us and that he consisted of a body, a soul, and a spirit. And when the Roman soldiers hung him on that cross, the only part that they could put to death was his body and his flesh. So from the world's perspective, what happened to Jesus in the flesh was undoubtedly the agony of defeat. Which is why even those who had been closest to him were in great despair after his death. But by the time we get to the end of this passage in verse 22, we will see how God turned that death into victory. And in the flesh and in the spirit, Jesus proved his triumph through his resurrection and ascension. And just like it is true with the death of every man, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a separation between his body and his spirit. And just like we will experience in the future when we have a bodily resurrection. And at his resurrection, Jesus' body and spirit were reunited. And through the resurrection, God turned the tremendous suffering that Jesus had experienced in his flesh into a spiritual triumph in which flesh and spirit were now both alive. And that triumph was evidenced by the fact that Jesus ascended flesh and spirit into heaven where he is now at the right hand of God and where he put into subjection all those who had been in the instruments of his suffering and death. Now notice, in particular, that he is sovereign over angels, authorities, and powers. And as we're going to see shortly, that includes 
the unholy angels who since creation have been trying to thwart God's plan of bringing his son into this world to be our Messiah and Savior. So if Peter had just left out the last part of verse 18 through the end of verse 21, his teaching here would be quite clear and would be consistent with the main theme that we've already identified this morning. When I follow Jesus, he transforms my suffering in the flesh into triumph in the spirit. Jesus suffered and died in the flesh, but because he was faithful, because he stayed true to his word, and he fulfilled God's purpose, God turned that suffering in the flesh into that triumph in the spiritual realm. So the clear implication here is that if I follow or if you follow Jesus' example and submit yourself to God's plan for your life, he will do the very same for you and I. He will transform whatever suffering we might experience in the flesh into that spiritual triumph. And he will turn the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory. And with that idea firmly planted in our minds this morning, we are now ready to tackle the tough part of our passage this morning, in which we see, in the Spirit, Jesus proclaimed his triumph. Now, in some of your English Bible translations, the word Spirit at the end of verse 18 is translated with a capital S, if you notice that. You can turn there now and look. Which this would indicate and make it a reference to the Holy Spirit. We can't say for sure whether that is correct or not since there are no capitals in the Greek language. However, the context here leads or should lead us to believe that the ESV and many other translations correctly translate this word with a small s, which would make it a reference to the human spirit of Jesus. And that seems to be consistent with the overall context of this section of Peter's letter that carries over into chapter 4. And we'll get there four years from now. So make reference of this, okay? So where Peter is going to continue, he's going to continue to contrast flesh and spirit. So the last phrase of the verse could accurately be translated something like this. Being put to death with reference to his flesh, but made alive with reference to his spirit. And so the first thing I'd like you to note about the spirit of Jesus is that it was made alive, which certainly implies that at some point it had not been alive. And while we can't be very dogmatic here, I believe that occurred at the moment when all the sins of mankind were born by Jesus and as a result, there was a separation between Jesus and his father. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at some point after that, there is no way to know exactly when and how Jesus' spirit was made alive again. So that idea seems to be supported by the words of Jesus shortly thereafter when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it was in his spirit that had been made alive again. That Jesus went and proclaimed something to the spirits in prison according to verse 19. We have now arrived at the toughest part of this text and I'm going to try to explain it to the very best that I know how, which you could take that for a grain of salt. But undoubtedly you'll find that there are many men much more educated and learned than I am who have different opinions on this, but after countless hours of study and prayer and school and yada, 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 I'm going to share with you what I believe to be the best explanation of what actually occurred. But we need to answer 
three particular questions in order to get to that conclusion. The first question, to whom did Jesus make this proclamation? What did he proclaim and when did he proclaim it? And I think we actually have enough information here and in some other Bible passage to kind of give a high level of confidence for us in the answers that we'll arrive at this morning. So let's tackle them one by one. First question, to whom did Jesus make the proclamation? The obvious answer is the spirits in prison. But who is Peter referring to here? We have several pretty good clues in the text. First, unless accompanied by a further description that would indicate otherwise, the word spirits is always used in the New Testament to refer to angels. In fact, when he refers to humans in verse 20, citing the eight persons that were saved, Peter uses the word so he can literally translate it into souls. Souls. So these spirits don't appear to be humans. And I think verse 22 also gives us that support to the idea that Peter is using the word spirit to refer to angels since he focuses on Jesus' authority over the angels, over the other authorities and powers, rather than over men after his ascension. We also know that these spirits are in prison. And the word translated prison clearly indicates this is a physical place and not just a state of being. And nowhere in scripture are the souls of men described as being imprisoned. I think it's also fair to assume that Peter didn't just throw in the reference to the days of Noah just for the fun of it. So there must be some connection between Noah and these spirits in prison. And if you want to get all the details on that, you're going to have to come to connections this morning. In other words, we need to search this for ourselves. Now I know part of the pastor's job is to come here, explain scripture, feed you so that you can feed others. That's one of the few job descriptions. But it should also be me to encourage you in your life, your kingdom life, to search the answers for yourself. Now, a lot of this this morning is opinion, and it could be debated. And I'm sure some of you will come up to me later and say, well, that's not what I got from it. And that's great. What is God saying to you? What is God speaking to you? But in reference to this, we need to make that connection this morning. So let me give you, quote unquote, the Reader's Digest version of this. We all know that in the days of Noah, there was tremendous wickedness and sin rampant in the world. There are some differences of opinion on exactly how they did it. But it is clear from the account in Genesis that much of the wickedness was furthered by the activity of demonic spirits. And as a result of that, God permanently imprisoned those unholy angels until the day of the Lord when they will be thrown into the lake of fire along with their leader, Satan. So Peter describes that process in his second letter, and we'll get into that a little later too. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The word translated hell in that passage is the Greek word which we translate literated into English as Tatarus. In classical Greek mythology, it described the subterranean abyss in which rebellious gods were punished. The world was taken over into Judaism and it was used to refer to the prison of fallen angels. 
Jude, in the book of Jude, there's also a description of what happened. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an internal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Jude 1, verse 6. So we need to explore how this relates to what occurred in Genesis 6, but we don't have the time to really delve into that this morning, but we will get there. But for now, what we want to note is that there are wicked angels who have been imprisoned to await their final judgment on the day of the Lord. So I think we can now answer our first question. To whom did Jesus make his proclamation? Wicked angels who had previously been imprisoned to await their final judgment. And that might be debated. You might debate that with me. That's great. Let's do that. Let's do that. So the second question this morning. What did he proclaim? What did he proclaim? And before we answer that question, let's eliminate one possibility. There are some who claim that Jesus was making a proclamation on the, uh, of the gospel to those of Noah's day who had refused to listen to Noah and who were therefore killed in the flood. So in a sense, they were getting a second chance to put their faith in Jesus. The Roman Catholic idea of purgatory has been developed, at least in part, based on this verse. However, the Bible is clear that once a person dies... He or she does not get a second chance to accept Jesus Christ. Now, I could cite a number of scriptures to show that, but one is sufficient for this morning. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So if he is not proclaiming the gospel, what is he Proclaiming. If he's not proclaiming the gospel, what is he proclaiming? Next week when we get into chapter 4, we'll look at another verse that specifically does refer to the preaching of the gospel. There the verb that is used is one from which we get our English word evangelism. But here in verse 19, Peter uses a completely different verb. One that simply means to make a proclamation or announce a triumph. And with that in mind, I think you should be able to answer question number two this morning of what did he proclaim? Look at verse 19. What did he proclaim? His victory over sin, his victory over death, demons, and Satan. He has proclaimed victory over all. His victory over sin, death, hell, demons, Satan. From the very moment they rebelled against God, Satan and his demons had been seeking to destroy the work of Jesus. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, bearing the sins of all mankind, and the physical life which crushed out of him, it appeared that they had succeeded. But in the spirit, Jesus goes to these imprisoned demons and proclaims that he has won, that he has overcome all their evil schemes, and that from now on, they are going to be subject to him. That's a great proclamation. It's one that we proclaim today. We can have victory over sin, over death, over hell, over demons, over all these things. Because God said it to be true. We have that victory. And then finally this morning, we need to know the third and final question. And that is, when did he proclaim this? When did he proclaim it? 
And there are certainly some differences of opinion here, but some claim this proclamation occurred only after the resurrection, and others believe it only when Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days later. And certainly those are both very good possibilities. But based on what we've already concluded about Jesus' audience and the nature of his message, it seems more likely to me that this occurred. Sometime between Jesus' death and resurrection, that's when it happened. Since Peter specifically says that Jesus went in spirit to make this proclamation, it seems that it must have taken place after Jesus' spirit was made alive, but before the resurrection, at which time his flesh was made alive as well. So even if we're not 100% correct on all the details here, Peter's main point is certainly apparent for us. Although Jesus suffered in the flesh, he turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory over all his enemies. And because Jesus did that, we can have the confidence that he transforms our suffering in the flesh into that triumph in the spirit. The illustration of Noah in this passage confirms this idea, in my opinion. Noah and his family spent about 120 years building the ark. And then we saw earlier when I read from Second Peter that during that time he was herald of righteousness. And as a result, Noah and his family were subjected to the scorn and persecution of their peers. They suffered in the flesh for all of that time. We, here on earth, are suffering in the flesh. Last week I told you to prepare to suffer. But I also didn't tell you for how long. Because we don't know. But it shouldn't matter how long. We wait here until Jesus comes. We suffer in the flesh because that's what Jesus did. He set the example. And so we must do the same. He suffered for all. And he suffered in the flesh for all that time as well. And that brings us to verse 21, which is also a very difficult part of this text. Talks about baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, this passage has been used by some to teach the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. And we could get into that too, but look that up. Baptismal regeneration. And it's just a fancy word of saying... um, The physical act of baptism is necessary for salvation. And as I pointed out at the beginning of this message this morning, in dealing with difficult texts like this, we have to make sure that we interpret them in light of the clear teaching of Scripture seen in both 1 Peter and our previous study in the book of Romans. That's where our reference is. The Bible is consistently clear that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. That salvation is by faith in Jesus alone and not a result of anything that we can do, including baptism. So with that in mind, why would Peter write here that baptism now saves you? To answer that question fully, again, would require another sermon. But let me share briefly one of many answers to that question. Remember that our English word baptism is a transliteration and not a translation of the underlying Greek word that simply means immersion. So that word has a 
far broader meaning than just water baptism. In fact, given the context, I'm confident that Peter uses the word baptism here in a much bigger way that the Paul used it in this passage. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And to just make sure that there is no misunderstanding, as soon as Peter writes that a person is saved by baptism, he immediately adds a disclaimer that he's not writing about a physical act in which dirt is removed from the flesh by water. The way that baptism into Christ corresponds to Noah and his family is that they persevered through the flood by placing their faith in God's provision of an ark the same way that, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) I knew it was coming. The same way, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) there goes my voice. The same, I'm going to get there. The same way we are saved by placing our faith in God's provision of Jesus. God's provision of Jesus. Notice that Noah and his family were saved through the water and not by the water. In fact, let me ask you this question. How much water actually touched Noah and his family? None, right? The water only saved them because they were in the ark that God had provided for them. The same is true of our baptism. We are not saved by the water, but rather we are saved as we go through the waters because we choose to be in Christ through our faith in him. That does not mean, however, that baptism isn't important. In fact, I think the reason that Peter even brings it up at all is because as Christians in that culture gave witness of their faith in Jesus through baptism, much like we do today. It's a public proclamation of our faith in Christ Jesus. We make that proclamation through our baptism so that others can be accountable to us to allow us to help one another. Peter's mention of baptism here is merely for the purpose of reinforcing the principle that is at the heart of this passage is when we follow Jesus, he transforms our suffering in the flesh into triumph in the spirit. Now, many of you here this morning might feel a lot like Mr. Vinko in the wide world of sports, tumbling down that hill, wondering what's going to happen. I'm sure he was thinking, oh, this is going to hurt. And it probably did. But how many of us are tumbling down that same hill, wondering, what are we going to do? This world is providing nothing but hurt, heartache, despair. And the day he skidded off that ski jump and suffered that agony of defeat... Much of us are suffering that defeat in the flesh. We are experiencing all kinds of suffering. And life is hard. But the good news is that when we take refuge in Jesus, like Noah and his family took refuge in the ark, God will save us through these stormy waters. He will turn the agony of defeat which we experience in the flesh into the thrill of victory that we experience both right now, right now, and also for eternity in the Spirit. I know most of you have already taken refuge in Jesus by placing your trust in Him alone and also given testimony that decision by being baptized subsequent to that. I know many of us have done that. But I also know 
that I would be remiss this morning if I didn't conclude by giving those who have never done both of those things an opportunity to let Jesus help you experience that thrill of victory. So first, let me address those of you who have never taken refuge in Jesus. Jesus died once for all in order to make it possible for you and I to be brought into a relationship with God. And the way that you enter into that relationship is by placing your faith in Jesus alone and relying 100% on what he did for you through his death and resurrection. That is very clear. That is very clear. If that's you this morning, if you're experiencing the tumble down that hill and there seems to be no end in sight, know this. God is there for you. He sent his son as that propitiation so that one day we can be in glory with him. And that opportunity is afforded to you today. And those of you who have already found Jesus and have experienced that, but maybe you still feel like you're tumbling down that hill because you're not understanding why things are the way they are whether it be in your life or in the lives around you, know that God is waiting there with that safety net. If we put our faith in him, he will catch us. That is the promise of this scripture. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. However, it does not mean that it's not important. And since Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized as a public testimony of their faith in him, choosing not to obey that command is not a salvation issue. Understand that. It's not a salvation issue. It's an obedience issue. So once again, if you've never done that, and God is speaking to your heart this morning, I encourage you, To be obedient in that area of your life. And we're going to give you that opportunity this morning. As David's going to come and give us our benediction. If you've never made that decision. Please don't leave without talking to us. Please don't leave without talking to any number one of us. Who want to help facilitate that. And allow you to join with us who know the love of Jesus Christ, who understand that there is no hope unless through him and that he is the only way, the only way to receive that salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Dave. As we we have this invitation, I'm going to ask Nancy, Nate, Keith, Laura, Sean, if you're here, we're going to stand, we're going to sing or two as long as pastor wants us to of what he's done we got him to church now we just of what he's done let's go to the whole song Russell if you don't mind go back up to the last song before the sermon please let's sing this truth together you want to make this morning before the Lord we invite you to come and see on the hill of Calvary my Savior bled for me oh my Jesus set me free yes look at the wounds that gave me life grace flowing from
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time here this morning. And though we may go through difficult times, you provide the way. You provide the light. You provide the opportunity for us to exemplify your righteousness. Thank you for those who have made decisions. Thank you for those who will make decisions to come to know you, to come to know you better. And Lord, for you to guide us through all those situations. Lord, we are blessed as a church to be where we are, to do what we do. And what we do is for your glory and your glory alone. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on that cross so many years ago. You took away the agony of defeat for us. And we can live victoriously through you. Thank you so much for our time. I pray now as we leave your house that you will be with us, that you will guide us, that you will provide us the opportunities to exemplify your righteousness, that we too may live by your example. Thank you again. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day, everyone. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.